isn't it a wonderful thought to think about being redeemed, reconciled to God? Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John chapter 3. Most of you already know that we began a brand new series of Sunday school lessons today from the Gospel of John. In fact, you'll be studying from this wonderful book for the next 40 weeks, 40 lessons from the Gospel of John. I don't know of any book of the Bible that would be more beneficial for an unsafe person to read and to meditate upon than this Gospel. If you have unsafe friends, I would encourage you to do everything in your power to get them to Sunday school every week where they can sit through this, this series of studies together. I mean, the Lord just makes it clear. Now, every book of the Bible is important, but there are certain books of the Bible designed for specific things. There are some books of the Bible that are extremely helpful for the Christian. And there are other books of the Bible that are more helpful for those that, are, uh, that have never been saved and, and reveals to them the need of salvation, the way of salvation, and the blessings of salvation. Now, I'm not planning on trying to you know, get a head start and jump off into this study and interfere with what the teachers will be teaching. But... In light of the fact that we're starting this new series from the Gospel of John, for the next three, maybe four weeks, I'm going to be preaching from this Gospel on some of the greatest things. Now, this is a series that could go on for months, but it won't. Just three or four weeks, I want to talk to you about some of the greatest things. This morning, I want you to think about life's greatest dilemma. Now, all of us have been in perplexing situations, right? I mean, sometime or another. Sometimes it's major, sometimes it's minor. Sometimes we make a mountain out of a molehill, don't we? I mean, some little petty thing, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, and I mean, we just blow it all out of proportion. But on the other hand, sometimes we make a we make a molehill or a mountain out of a molehill out of a mountain. I get that right? Yeah. We don't put any significance to it, you see. We just don't understand the importance of it. And although it's highly important, we totally neglect it. It sort of reminds me of the story I read about uh, the woman. She was washing and drying the clothes. And um, so some way or another, a red crayon got in the clothes. You parents can identify with this, surely. And it was in with the white stuff, and the mother just went ballistic whenever that white crayon in the dryer had melded all over everything. And she did what most mothers would do. She started ranting and raving and called little Johnny in there, you know. And he said, Mom, 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 don't worry about it. He said, I've got another red crayon. Don't worry about it. You see, some folks just don't understand what's important and what's not. You know, as long as I've got a red crayon, it doesn't make any difference. You know, that's never more true than it is whenever we talk about spiritual things. 
Because a lot of folks look at Christianity with sort of a, well, you know, a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Uh, they, li- they like to say, to each his own. Just, you know, believe whatever you want to be- believe. Uh, they might say, you know, Christianity's all right for you, but it doesn't work for me. Uh, they might say something to the effect that, you know, for the old and the weak and the odd that need a crutch to lean upon, Christianity is all right, but I don't need anything like that. And on and on and on goes the various opinions about Christianity. Uh, people's minds are occupied with all kinds of ideas and values and things that are absolutely frivolous. I mean, mean nothing whatsoever to God. And sometimes we fail to recognize what is really important. Somebody was talking about, I was reading an article about the, some of the football players and their Christian faith, you know, and, uh, and I'm glad for that. I mean, it really it blesses my heart when I hear someone like Kurt Warner say something to the effect that I give my Lord Jesus Christ all of the credit. You know, that's wonderful. I'm not belittling that. Thank God for that. But I've just never in my life been able to figure out how a born-again Christian can imagine that they're in the will of God out there playing football on the Lord's day. Now, you figure that out. If you get it answered, I'd like to know the answer. There's something wrong with that picture. Boy, it's really quiet now. I'm just telling you the truth. That's just the fact of the matter, folks. There's some things not that well. Now, I've got I've, I'm one of the teams I want to win, and one of them I want to lose. And I'm not going to tell you which one. But i got news for you. I really don't care who wins or who loses because that's not important whatsoever. Nothing important about that. I know some of you would differ with me, you know. It's uh, way up here on your list. Well, you need to redo your list. Amen. We need to understand what is important. Now, in the early part of chapter 3, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, he must be born again, he was giving us the bottom line, as it were, on what is really important, what is really significant in life. And, and that statement puts everything else in, in its proper perspective, ye must be born again. And so he's emphasizing the need for man's salvation. That was the message Jesus preached. That was the message that John the Baptist preached. Some folks attribute all of this chapter to the sayings of Jesus, and they miss the fact that it's John the Baptist who's speaking in the latter part of the chapter. And what, a, what an unusual and amazing man he was. I don't have time to go into all the details of his ministry, but it was so very important because he was the forerunner of Christ. He's the one that came on the scene and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to know there were a lot of important things going on back then. The Jewish people were living under the iron heel of the dominion of the, of the Romans, and they hated that. They despised it. They wanted to be liberated from that, as I suppose anyone would. But that wasn't the key issue. There might have been economic problems during that time, but those were not the key issues. The key issue in the mind of Jesus 
and in the ministry of John the Baptist and throughout all of the testimony of the Bible, the key issue is this. Have you been born again? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? That's what it's all about. Now, I want you to notice just one verse out of this chapter this morning. Verse number 36, John the Baptist is speaking And he says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, in this statement here, we find that there are two groups of people. Notice there's a contrast here. The contrast is between belief and unbelief. And it's directed toward two groups of people. There are believers, there are unbelievers. In other words, the saved and the unsaved. This morning in this congregation, we can divide everyone up into two groups. I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. I'm not talking about, you know, black and white. I'm not talking about rich and poor. I'm not talking about the learned and the illiterate. I'm talking about the saved and the lost. And every single person in this building is either saved, you've been born again, or you're unsaved. There's no middle ground, folks, and we need to understand that. It troubles me so much when I hear somebody say, you know, you ask them if they've been saved, if they're they're a Christian, and they say, well, you know, I think so, or I, I hope so. There's something wrong with that. The, the Bible tells me that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. So when I stand here and tell you that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I died today that I would go to be with the Lord, when I say that, listen, I'm not just giving you my opinion. I'm not just assuming something. I'm not just being braggadocious because it has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God assuring me that I am a child of God. Now, this being the most important issue, this being the greatest dilemma, that is, being in an unsafe state, It doesn't get any worse than that. Being unsaved. That's as bad as it gets, folks. Being saved is the most wonderful thing. Now, I want you to look at four things here. First of all, the basis for receiving salvation. Notice John says, He that believeth on the Son. Now, before we think about that, I want you to consider all of the things that are not mentioned here. Notice, he that believeth on the Son. No mention of baptism. There's no mention of church membership. There's no mention of giving. No mention of good works. Now, all of those things are important, understand, but none of those things are mentioned in the context of being born again. So that's what he didn't say, but notice what he said. He that believeth on the Son. Now, that is in exact accord with what the Bible teaches everywhere else. And so we've got to make a decision. Are we going to believe the Bible, or are we going to believe somebody else? Will you stand with the Bible, or will you take your place with those who reject it? He that believeth on the Son. Now, we could just leave it there and we could just move on. 
But I think that's a mistake. You know, just to say, he that believes on the Son hath everlasting life, and just no explanation, no examination, I think we'd make a mistake for this reason, because nowadays when people talk about, well, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and so forth, they don't have a clue as to what the Bible actually teaches about saving faith. And it's important, folks, that we understand this. I mean, it's the difference between heaven and hell. Saving faith is more than giving your mental assent to historical facts. Listen, the devil, the Bible says the devil believes he knows precisely who Jesus is. No question about it. He knows more about Jesus than we do in a lot of ways. He has all of that information, but he's still the devil. He's still not reconciled to God, even though he has all of this information. So saving faith is more than knowledge. Now, knowledge is important because you've got to know what to believe. That's important. you got some folks, you know, say, well, it doesn't make any difference what you believe. Just as long as you're sincere, everything will be all right. No, that's wrong. You've got to have the truth. You've got to have the right information. But in addition to the information, there has to be that element of trust on your part where you believe what God says. So what is saving faith? Well, number one, saving faith acknowledges Christ to be who the Bible declares He is. You see, there are a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is. There are a lot of false Christ. A lot of people that will use the name Jesus, and they mean something entirely different than what we mean. There are a lot of various denominations that clearly teach that salvation comes as a result of works, and yet they will use some of the same terminology that we use. You could quote Ephesians 2.8, for example, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they would say, well, we believe that. We could quote John 14, verse number 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And all and on. They said, well, we believe that. And yet they'll take the same verse, the same words, and twist it and turn it and make it mean something entirely different than what God intended. Saving faith is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is exactly who the Bible claims that He is. That's more than a miracle worker, more than a good example for us to follow, more than a great teacher. The Bible declares that He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus is God. In Colossians, it tells us He's the Creator of all things. Jesus is God. Until a person acknowledges that, they'll never be saved. Secondly, saving faith not only acknowledges who He is, but it assents to His sufficiency, to the sufficiency of His power to save. You see, it's not just recognizing who He is. We've got to actually believe that He is able to save us. Do you believe that He's able? The Bible says that, He is able, and indeed He is. He's able to save to the uttermost all that come to God. 
by Him. He's able. But we've got to believe that. It's not just thinking that He might be, but it's actually believing that He is able, that He indeed will save us. Then thirdly, saving faith accepts what He provides. It accepts His forgiveness. It accepts whatever it is that the Lord provides, and then it assures us of what God has promised. And lastly, saving faith will attest itself in good works. Now, we're not saved by our works, but listen, where there is life, there's going to be evidence. There are going to be vital signs. You go out here on the road this afternoon, find somebody laying alongside the road, and, I mean, you check his pulse, check all of the vital signs, and if there are not any vital signs, you think, well, I might have missed something, I'll give it 24 hours. You check back later, 24 hours later, no vital signs. You think, well, I'll wait another day or two, and you come back, no vital signs. I'm telling you, you can, you can, you can come to the conclusion that there's no life. That person is dead. And when a person has received Jesus Christ as their Savior, there are going to be some evidences of it. The Holy Spirit's going to begin making changes in our life, changes in our attitude, changes in our action. We become a person that we've never been before. Now, we're not perfect, but we're in a process of changing. And so saving faith ultimately will give testimony to that fact. There will be evidence. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. Now, look at the next phrase here. We see not only the basis for receiving salvation, but notice the blessing of receiving Christ. He that believeth on the Son, now here it is, have everlasting life. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how wonderful that statement is hath everlasting life. First of all, we see here that, that life, salvation, is a personal possession. Notice that word, he. He that believeth on the Son, whoever it is, doesn't make any difference. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is personal to you, and you are rich beyond compare. Think about it. You're now a child of God. Here is God, the Creator and the Judge of everybody, but He's not the Father of all. Now, most people don't believe that, but it's true. He said in John chapter 8 and verse 44 to a certain bunch, He said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the deeds of your father ye will do. You see, the unsaved person has Satan for their father. That was true of me. It's true of every unsaved person. God's your creator. God is your judge. But He's not your father until the moment that you are born again, you become a part of His family. And think about what that means. Think about how wonderful it is to now personally be a part of God's family, to have Him as your father, Jesus Christ as your elder brother. But notice... Not only is it a personal possession, but it is a present possession. He says, he what? What's that word? Hath. Hath. I mean, listen, this is in the present tense. He's not talking about something that we're going to get someday. He's talking about right now. That salvation, eternal life, is our present possession. John said over in 1 John chapter number 3, he said, Beloved, now... 
are we the sons of God. It didn't say someday we're going to be. It didn't say that we used to be. But now are we the sons of God. I mean, right now. You see, if you're saved, you are just as saved right now as you will be when you get into heaven. Now, listen, heaven's going to be a lot different. People are going to be more agreeable there. I mean, the environment's going to be a whole lot better. Everything about heaven's going to be better. And by the way, you have a glorified body. All of the suffering, pain, heartache, all of those things are going to be gone forever. But listen to me, you will be no more a child of God in heaven than you are a child of God right now. That ought to stir our heart to think about the fact that right now, you know, some folks say, well, I thought we had to die first and get up there to the pearly gates and find out whether they're going to let us in or not. There's nothing to that, folks. Listen, as a child of God, we have rights. We're God's children. That's our home. You don't have to sneak in a back door or climb over the wall even if you could. I mean, listen, you're going to be welcomed there. Home at last. Have. Now notice, not only is it personal and present, notice it's permanent. Have everlasting. You see, believers are not only presently saved, they are permanently safe. You see, it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to remain safe. In other words, here's a man falls into a pit, and we, you know, you finally get him out, and so he's standing around there, rejoicing and thanking everybody, and he falls back into the pit again. So here he is, back in the same situation. Well, that's not the way salvation works. Salvation is a one-time experience where you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are birthed into God's family. You become God's child. I mean, just like that. And all of a sudden, you're a child of God. Imperfect, but nevertheless, a child of God. Now, you might do many things that would bring shame to your father's name, but you're still a child of God. Growing up, I did a lot of things that embarrassed my parents, no doubt about that. But I never ceased being their child. And that's the way it is in your relationship with God, that you are saved and you are safe. The security of the believer is a precious doctrine. Jimmy Swaggart said some years ago, and if you listen to him, you ought to stop it. Jimmy Swaggart said on national TV, and then you expect me to not respond to this when he said it on national TV, you got another thing coming. He gets on national TV and talks about, quote, the damnable heresy that the Baptists teach concerning eternal security. I don't know what book he's been reading, but I'll tell you what this book says. That we have eternal life, everlasting life. Amen. Amen? Listen, if it's eternal today and I lose it tomorrow, it wouldn't have been eternal yesterday, would it? Eternal life, it never ends. Once you're born into God's family, you are forever a child of God. It's your permanent possession But then it's your precious possession. Notice what we're talking about. He says life, everlasting life. Isn't that a great word? Life. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have now been quickened. And that word means made alive. 
We've been made alive by the Spirit of God. We've been made alive in Christ Jesus. We don't just have physical life. We have much more than that. We have spiritual life. We have a changed life, a better life, a meaningful life, abundant life, radiant life, joyful life, eternal life. That's the kind of life that He provides. Not just eternal existence. Every unsaved person on this earth is going to exist eternally. So that's not what we mean by eternal life. It's not just the state. It's the quality of it. It's everlasting life in the highest sense of the word. Life simply implies that we are in connection, if I can use that crude illustration, in connection with God. That word reconcile that we used earlier, that word simply means to be brought into a state of oneness. It's talking about two opposing parties brought into a state of oneness. They're reconciled together. That's what happens whenever you're saved. We're reconciled to God. Now listen to me. His life. You see, Christianity is not just a way of life. I know that's what some folks think. Well, it's just a way of life. You live the Christian way of life. Well, there is a way of Christian living, no doubt. But Christianity is not just a way of life. It's the life of Christ in us. That's why we can't lose our salvation. He is eternal. You'd have to kill God. His Spirit is living in us as the children of God, and we have eternal security. You think, oh, well, that's great. I've got eternal security. That means, I'll, you know, I, there's no way I could ever miss heaven. That's right. Well, you say, that's such good news. I think I'll just go ahead and live any way I want to, sin all I want to, and uh, because it's not going to affect me. Well, I didn't say it wouldn't affect you. I said it wouldn't keep you out of heaven. Oh, it'll affect you. Number one, it'll affect you in the sense that while you're here on earth, you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for your sin and your rebellion. It might even result in your premature death. But secondly, it's going to result in the loss of eternal reward. When we just flitter our life away as though it didn't mean anything. So there is a price to pay. But thank God for the precious possession of eternal life. Now... We've looked at the basis for salvation. We've looked at the blessing of it. But notice the barrier to receiving salvation. Here it is. Let's read the whole thing. He that believeth, notice on the Son, hath everlasting life. But he that, notice, believeth not the Son. That's the barrier right there. You see, it's not just your lack of knowledge. It's not your lack of money. It's not even, not even your lack of morals or your lack of good works that keep you out of heaven. Unbelief is the damning sin. Now, what could be more simple than this? Childlike faith is so simple, but it's so serious. And you don't go to hell because you committed this sin or that sin or some other sin. Now, we certainly, listen, we certainly go to hell because we are sinners. There's no doubt about that. But listen, the thing that, that, that causes us to miss heaven is the fact that we do not receive the remedy that God has provided. That's unbelief. We think about, and I'll use this as an example. 
We think about the sin of homosexuality. Whenever I was a boy growing up, we, we, you didn't talk about that. You, didn't dare, you wouldn't even think about When I started preaching, you wouldn't think about using that word standing in a church service like this this morning. We've been forced to deal with it by those that are trying to make it acceptable in our society. And it is a terrible, horrible horrendous sin and abomination in the sight of God. It's horrible. I can't tell you how bad it is. But i got news for you folks. I can't tell you how bad adultery is or fornication is. And just go on with the list. I'm just trying to get you to understand and to think this morning that, you know, that that it's not always the case that one sin is so much more horrible and terrible than the other. Now, this is going to shock some of you, and you need to think it through. You're not going to hell because you're a homosexual, an adulterer, or a drunkard, or any of that. Listen, that, that's not the damning sin. Some of those folks are going to be in heaven. You say, well, what keeps you out of heaven? Unbelief. Refusing to believe, refusing to accept the remedy that God has provided. Now, listen, when you do, when you receive Christ, there is a difference. Remember Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, and such were some of you. You used to be these things, and he names a list of sins. He said that, that describes what you used to be. You're not that way now, that, but that's what you used to be. But notice, none of them, none of them were damned as a result of having committed those sins. It's the sin of unbelief. That's the damning sin. Refusing to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We so often talk about salvation in terms of being a, an invitation. And we picture it, we describe it as the Lord standing at our heart's door and He's knocking to gain entrance and, and He's inviting us to open unto Him. And, and it's true that God pictures salvation as being like a banquet and we're all invited. There is an invitation. But here's what you need to understand. It's not just a matter of you being invited to salvation. You are commanded the Bible says that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are living in outright stubborn rebellion against God. He's commanding you to repent. And if we refuse, what? Well, that's what he says, he that believeth not. That's the barrier, but notice the bitterness of it. Here's the bitterness of rejecting salvation. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, this part of the verse is as awful as the first part is wonderful. The wrath of God. Just think about all that involves. Consider this word. Notice he says, abideth. That tells us that the unsaved person is presently, currently living under the wrath of God. And, and he says that he's condemned already in, in verse 18. Condemned already is not something going to happen later. Condemned already. You say, well, I thought I had to wait till I get to heaven and see if I'm going to be condemned or not. Oh, no, that's decided down here. He that believeth not is condemned already, living as it were under the wrath of God. 
Jonathan Edwards preached what was no doubt the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was a frail man with thick bifocals. And there in that dimly lit building with a little lamp, he had his message printed out on a manuscript, and he had to get down real close and just got down and read the manuscript of the message. I mean, nothing emotional about it. But as he began to describe sinners in the hands of an angry God and the wrath of God, and he pictured it as sinners swinging, as it were, by a spider web over the gaping jaws of hell. And as he went on and he went on, suddenly the Spirit of God brought conviction upon those people. There were folks literally clinging to the pillars in the church, hanging on for fear of dropping off into that horrible place called hell. And I want you to know, folks, he had it right. You say, I never thought about God being angry. Oh, yes, the Bible says God's angry with the wicked every day. God hates sin. Now, God loves you, but God hates the sin that's in your life. And in spite of the fact that God loves you, you can't go to heaven. You can't be saved. You can't have all of your sins forgiven by just believing that God loves you. That's not enough. You've got to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and accept what Jesus Christ has done. And when you do that, God's willing to accept you. That's why Ephesians 1.8 says, We are made accepted in the Beloved. You see, God wraps us in the cloak of the righteousness of His own dear Son and receives us. I began by saying it's a picture of contrast, life and death. And here we're looking on the dark side. The wrath of God abides on Him. Now, that speaks to two groups of people. Number one, those that are lost, the sinner. If you're here today and you don't know beyond all shadow of a doubt that you're a child of God, you need to understand how horrible, how terrible that place called hell is. And it's real, just as real as heaven. And that's where you're headed, folks. I mean, right now, you're already condemned. Were you to die, this precious young lad, 15 years old, strong and healthy and nobody suspected that was going to happen. Brother Barry got the phone call that, that Tyler was sick and then he was being life flighted. The next thing you know, you get the message, he died. If you're unsaved, you're already condemned and death is simply the beginning of your sentence forever and ever. You need to do something about that right now this morning. Secondly, this addresses those of us that, that are saved, the saints of God. No doubt all of us have some loved ones that we've got questions about. I sure do. I'd like to stand here and tell you that I know without any doubt that all of my children are really saved, and all of my grandchildren. I can't tell you that. I don't know that. 
And I'm telling you, in some instances, there's reason for doubt. Folks, all of us have friends and relatives that are condemned already. Are you with me? I said condemned already. Right now, living under the wrath of God, it is abiding upon them. It's hovering over them. And the very moment their spirit leaves their body, it's into hell forever and ever and forever. We should not need anything else to encourage us to be a witness and an example to our loved ones. We ought to leave here this morning determined that by the grace of God, we'll do everything in our power to bring our loved ones to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That ought to become more important to us than anything else on this earth, seeing them born again. The greatest dilemma in the whole world is not the crisis in the Middle East. It's not the economic crisis that we face here in America. It's not the discovery of something that will be a cure for AIDS. The greatest dilemma in the world has to do with whether a person is saved or lost. And if you're lost, it could not be any worse. I really sometimes wonder if we Christians really, really believe that all of this is true. Kind of like a fellow in England years ago, he heard a preacher preach and he preached about hell and he came up to him afterwards and the man was an unbeliever and he said, I'll tell you what, if I believe what you believe, he said, I would trawl across England on broken glass down on my hands and knees to make sure I told everybody about it. And so you've got to wonder sometimes if we really believe this is true. The very thought that some of our dear loved ones could spend eternity in a lake of fire. It's just that serious, folks. Let's get serious about trying to win them. And if you're here and you're not saved, you can be saved right now. You say, well, how? He that believeth. That's all it takes is that childlike faith, willing to accept Jesus Christ for who He is. Trust Him to do what He promised. And this is your invitation as we stand together. And as we stand and lift our voice in song, God has given you a wonderful opportunity here this morning. He's given you the opportunity to become one of His children. And what you do with it, what you do with it will determine your eternal destiny. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already a Christian, but you've never been scripturally baptized or you're not, you're not in one of the Lord's churches. Whatever it is, folks, listen, it's time we quit playing games with God. Time we got serious. And whatever God wants you to do, would you do that right now while